Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Thanks for being here after a week off. It's good to, good to be back. I had a wonderful time last week at Friends University. Um, they have a program where they offer the churches in the area to come and set up a table, first week of school, just meet the students, offer them, you know, let them know what's in the community, what churches are around. They were probably maybe a dozen and a half, maybe 12, 18 churches, something like that. And so Pastor Billy and I were there having fun, just talking with all the students and administrators, and that was great. So uh, that's so close to us. We really hope that they, this, this, they'll take advantage of it. This Wednesday night in the coffee shop here, the gathering grounds, we're having a Friends University night where we just put out some snacks and offer the, the uh, drinks for a dollar, the coffees for a dollar, and just see if some students will come hang out with us, just a way to get them in the door, so. Uh, and I, of course, I teach the college class, which is fun, and, and we have some exposure there. But uh, good to be back into the Gospel of John with you today. We are going to begin the 10th chapter today. We may not admittedly get very far into the 10th chapter, because there's a lot of, lot of uh, kind of overview that I want to give you this morning before we just jump right into the 10th chapter 10th chapter is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It is just such a beautiful, comforting passage. It's one filled with beauty and symbolism that we need to understand. So what I want us to do this morning is put ourselves into the mind of a first century Judean uh, citizen, an, an Israelite from the first century. And let's hear this passage as it might have been heard by then. So to do that, we want to have just a little bit of background. You know, this is clearly, this is the, this is the Good Shepherd chapter, right? You know, there's hospitals named Good Shepherd, and there's, there's ministries called Good Shepherd, and churches called Good Shepherd. And it's, it's one of our favorite images of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it shows us his gentleness. It shows us his care. One of the most beloved psalms in all the book of Psalms is what? Psalm 23. The good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I handed out to you some scriptures that you will see that there are, I, I think if I counted them right, there's 29 scriptures there. This is not exhaustive of every time the shepherd is mentioned in the scripture, but it is this concentrates on the Old Testament. Because that's what they had. When, when, if we were a first century Jew living in Judea, we knew the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. So let's, let's think Old Testament for a little while here this morning. This is what we would know as Holy Scripture. This is the Word of God. And as you look through these, what I did was just print out a bunch of scriptures that speak of God as the shepherd of Israel and or that speak about the importance of the life of the shepherd. Okay? In our culture today, shepherds are hardly ever thought of. We, we, don't, we live in a kind of a, well, we live in a metro area, you know, so we're not a rural agrarian community. But even when there are shepherds in America and you live in a, come in a kind of an agricultural community, um, shepherds don't take the highest prominence. When we hear of... Uh, Ranchers, we think a lot of beef in this country, and you know, I I grew up when I was growing up. I had family; they were pig farmers, hog farmers. They called them. Um, one gentleman I knew was a a shepherd, a uh, sheep farmer, and we don't even call them shepherds. We just think of sheep farmers, you know. Uh, so the whole concept of the life of the shepherd is a little lost on us in our culture today, um, but not on them. Very, very important and dear to them. So as you look through them, you see clear back in the book of Genesis. God's been talking about the shepherds since the beginning of Scripture. Way back in, there's a couple of them here to the book of Genesis. 
Uh, I like Genesis 48:15 down in the middle of the page that says, "He blessed Joseph and said, quote, "The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day." Isn't that amazing? <coughs> Even in the book in the book of Genesis, I mean, the idea that God was their shepherd hundreds of years. I don't know, maybe thousands of years before Psalm 23 was ever written, they identified God as their shepherd. That's beautiful. Why, why, why was it so important to them? We're going to discuss that. And as you read some of these, admittedly, a lot of them are from the book of Psalms. It's one of God's favorite ways in the book of Psalms of, exp- of showing his nature, of uh, revealing himself. Uh, and so I give those to you. We're not going to study and read each one of them. I just want you to have those so that you can maybe keep those handy, fold them up, keep them in your Bible as we study this 10th chapter and, and just think about them as you maybe learn something new about God as our shepherd and what that means. I have on the television here a picture of a Judean hillside. Okay? There's a Judean hillside. I tried to make it bigger, but then I lose some focus on a couple of things. Let's see what I can do here. If I make it, if I do this, it kind of goes out and shows others alongside it, so I wasn't getting everything I wanted. But you can kind of see, um, what do you notice about these pictures of these pasture lands, if we can call them that? What do you notice? Hilly. They're hilly? Rocky. They're rocky. Lots of rocks. No grid. No what? No grid. Like no. electric lines. Yeah, no grids, no electric lines. Pretty. No fences. I don't see water. See what else we can see. Now, this is a modern picture, so there's a fence. But, of course, in the first century, there weren't any fences. Uh, you don't see a lot of water, do you? Things are green for the most part, but that's... that's uh, that's because it's probably in the spring and the rainy season, but there's certainly a lot of times you can see it's getting kind of, uh, there's even a little bit of snow on that picture. Here's a little brook running through here, so there is just a little water in that one. Um, lots of rocks, rocks everywhere. The Judean hillside, the, the countryside of Judea, is actually like a plateau in the, it's the higher elevations of Israel. And it spans about 35 miles from north to south in, uh, from what they would call uh, from Bethel to Hebron, if you look on a map. From Bethel to Hebron, that's the Judean hillsides and wilderness. And then it's maybe about 17 miles wide at its widest part. But it's a plateau, and this, of course, nestled into that is Jerusalem as well. Jerusalem is the capital city, and... Uh, It's nestled into those hillsides. And, of course, very near Jerusalem, of course, is Bethlehem. And when you visit Bethlehem, if you ever get to, you will hopefully have a chance to visit the shepherd's fields. And uh, while you can't walk out into them, you can stand up above where the church is and view what looks like these rocky hillsides. I mean, it just does not look like ideal. If you were going to go buy some land and start a pasture for your sheep or something, that doesn't look like fun to me. You're going to be up and down the hills. It's not level to walk on. There's rocks everywhere. Uh, So this creates a natural challenge for the shepherd and, of course, for the sheep as well. Um, He has to worry a lot. Are the sheep going to wander off over a hill where he can't see them? They're constantly wandering because there's not a lot of grass in any one place. And so they're moving from place to place a lot. They're naturally, like any animal, they're going to seek out water. They're going to find water to drink with them. Um, So, and again, when it's not just flat like it is here in Kansas, we can see for miles and miles if we're out in a pasture in Kansas. If there's a wolf coming, we can see it for miles. If there's a wolf hiding behind one of those big rocks, crouched down, getting ready to pounce, you can't really see him. So there's just a natural danger. It's, in fact, the shepherd, the life of the Judean shepherd, is one of the most dangerous lifestyles that anyone could have lived. Well, number one, the shepherd, here's a couple things to remember about the life of the shepherd. You're never off work. Never off work. 
24-7, that shepherd's with his sheep. He's watching over them in the daytime, and when he brings them into the sheep pen at night, he's watching over them then. Uh, challenging lifestyle. Uh, he is called to lay down his life for the sheep. This is, this is their livelihood. Now, sheep in Judea back in that day, and, and even to today some, were not mainly a product for uh, consumption. In America and the Western world, people raise sheep mostly to butcher them and sell them for meat. But there and then, even so some now, they were a product for their wool. They would shear them and let it grow back and shear them and let it grow back. And So think about the fact that these sheep were with this shepherd for years and years from the time they were little to the time they were old and died. So they're kind of like family, kind of like children. There's a closeness between the shepherd and the sheep. All this imagery is going to be very important as we study this chapter for you to think about. But uh, I think that's probably gives, gives you enough pictures. I mean, it's kind of fascinating to watch them and, and to, to look at them. I just can't imagine traipsing up and down that hillside all day, wandering and watching those sheep. But uh, what a life that would be. Uh, Do sheep stay together like cows? Like in herds? They're herds. They are herds, but but they're given to wander off, too. They can stray and wander off, too, especially if they have their head down and they're constantly eating. One thing about sheep is they constantly want to eat. The shepherd has to be careful. <laughs> I'm a sheep, yeah. <laughs> there is a reason why God uses the analogy for humans as sheep, his children as sheep. Uh, the one is that we love to eat, and sheep love to eat. It's said that a sh- it's said that sheep will eat themselves to death. If a, if a, literally, if a, uh, they can expand their stomach to the point that it just they'll they'll die from overeating. It, it's if you let them. The shepherd has to be careful of that. But also, the sheep are followers. You know, there's usually a leader among them, a ram or somebody that's a leader among them. And, and they'll tend to follow. I mean, the old story you've heard about a sheep that will wander off the edge of a cliff and everybody else will wander after it. You know, there's, I don't know if that's exactly true, but it's fairly true that they will just wander and they'll follow where it might be dangerous. So, again, analogies to our human life. You know, we have a tendency to do that. Uh, the other analogy that you hear a lot is that, that people say, say, sheep are dumb. You know, you hear that, don't you? So maybe, I don't know if God was thinking that. I don't, I don't like to think of that one. I don't like to think of us humans as dumb, although we sure prove it sometimes. Yeah, but uh, say that you only use so much of your brain. Yeah. I forgot what the percentage was. I've heard different, different numbers, but that's what medical science says. And if that's true, which I have no reason to believe it's not, we sure have a lot of capacity to grow in our knowledge, don't we? But when I hear the stories of shepherds in the Judean hillsides and the stories that they tell, um, one of the greatest, there's a book that was written in the 20th century, a great traveling writer. His name was V.H. Morton. You can look up his books. V.H. Morton. He wrote a book called In the Master's Steps. In the Master's Steps. And what he was an English writer from Britain. What he did was travel to the Holy Land, and spent time there and wandered around. And he was a gifted writer, and he observed the lifestyle. This was even in the early you know, parts of the 20th century. He was observing the life of these shepherds. And he writes some amazing stories of the life of the shepherd and listening to the shepherd call for the sheep and watching the sheep respond to the shepherd's call. And it's really, if you ever get a chance to read some of his works, they're beautiful. Uh, V.H. Morton, In the Master Steps, is one of his, his best books. Um, so this is, a, this is a lifestyle, this shepherding lifestyle. If you were going to be a shepherd, it was your life's work. Dangerous occupation, a consuming occupation, and a very self-sacrificing occupation. <clears throat> if a wolf comes or a predator comes... The sheep can't defend itself. It has one defense. That's the shepherd. And his object is not to turn and run. Now some of my favorite cartoons are the, the, uh, 
I love the Wile E. Coyote cartoons when he's with, not the Roadrunner, but the, you know, that they made some cartoons with him and that sheepdog. Was it Sam? I think Sam the sheepdog. Does anybody remember Sam the sheepdog? I should have brought pictures of that and put that on the computer. That would be kind of fun. Sam the sheepdog. And, and it's like, you know, Sam's job is to guard the sheep and the coyote's job is to get one of them. And so they play these games all day trying to, and then at the end of the day, they punch out on a clock and, you know, <laughs> see you tomorrow, Sam. See you tomorrow, Wiley. Um, it's, a, it's a funny cartoon, but it does show us we don't see the, that ever happening in real life. The shepherd never punches out. But uh, the limits to what the dog has to go through to protect the sheep is uh, drawn from real life experience, I'm sure. Um, so this idea of God as the shepherd, as we see in our scriptures here, all this list of Old Testament scriptures, spills over into the New Testament as well. There are numerous scriptures in verses in the New Testament that speak to us of God as our shepherd. And uh, a couple of them I'll share with you that I think are pretty important. Of course, we're going to read about John chapter 10, which is one of the main ones. But, but in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter calls uh, Christ, he calls Christ the shepherd of men's souls. The shepherd of men's souls. That's a beautiful, one of the many names for Jesus Christ that you can find in Scripture. And in Hebrews chapter 13 in Hebrews chapter 13, there's a benediction that is used often at the end of funerals. Uh, and, and in fact, it's in our funeral uh, manual uh, from the Church of the Nazarene. And it talks about the great, quote, the great shepherd of the sheep, meaning Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. So this concept of the shepherd, God is our shepherd, Jesus Christ as the good shepherd, the great shepherd, all of this spills over into the New Testament. This is the life that they were hearing as well. So the we remember we're dealing with uh, Jesus and his disciples here in John chapter 10. He's teaching them. He's talking with them. We have no record that any of the 12 were, were shepherds. We, we just don't have a record. We don't know every single one of them's occupation. We know that the, the first three called or the, were fishermen, uh, but we don't know what the, all of their occupation. We know one was a tax collector. You know, Matthew, Levi was a tax collector. But we don't know all of them. Maybe there was a shepherd, maybe there wasn't. I maybe lean to the side that there wasn't. No way of knowing that, but just knowing that he drew them more from the north of the country rather than the south down in, uh, in Judea. But let's, let's look at some, just the first, I want to read the first six verses of this chapter. And let's just let it flow, and, and then we'll come back and, and discuss a little more. Okay, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now the fact that, let's stop right there, the fact that John put that last phrase in there, but they did not understand what he was saying to them at this point, maybe leads us to believe maybe none of them were shepherds. Um, because if they were shepherds, it would have been, this idea of the sheep know his voice would have been top of the mind to them. Uh, there's, if you read some of V.H. Morton's, that's where some of the stories he tells are just amazing. That the sheep actually... Uh, the, the shepherd actually had uh, a way of calling to the sheep. It's not even a human language. I mean, they use noise. It maybe sounded, V.H. Morton said it sounded like animal noises of some kind. And not just a typical little bleeding noise that a sheep makes. But it would be amazing how when they would hear, and it, some of it was very melodic, almost like singing. And then other times, it, it, you know, the sheep would just lift its head up and immediately turn. 
and, and hear that voice. And VH would say that then he would hear uh, a, a time where there was uh, someone else nearby. There was two sheep flocks that were ended up grazing together, and at the end of the night they had to separate them. Who knows whose sheep is whose? You know, they're not branded like cattle are, you know, today or anything. And the only way they could separate was, you could see the shepherd, these two shepherds would make that call. And the sheep that were his followed him. The sheep were the other guys. You know, they didn't even, the other sheep did not respond to that other shepherd. And he said, it was amazing how you could almost sense their nervousness. That's not our shepherd's voice. So, they, when their shepherd's voice came, they, they were able to follow them. So there was that amazing, uh, amazing thought about hearing. So as we read through this chapter, I want us to stop and think, do we know our shepherd's voice? These are some questions we're going to ask ourselves in this chapter. Do we know our shepherd's voice? What does our shepherd's voice sound like? What does the shepherd say to us? What's the message of our shepherd to us? Lots of, of little questions here, but let's begin at the beginning. I want to want to talk a little bit about the shepherd. There are four things I've written on the board for you over on the left-hand side. Every shepherd had these four things. A scrip, a sling, a staff, and a rod. Let's take them all one by one and see if we know what they are. What is a scrip? You might know what that old-fashioned word is for, for what the shepherd had, the scrip. It was actually like a bag or a purse he wore over his shoulder, around his neck and shoulder. And in that, in that little bag-type purse, he, wore, he had uh, some very, very important things. Number one, usually some olives, a little bread, and some cheese. It's pretty much all they had to eat for lunch that wouldn't spoil Okay, when they're out for long periods of times. And he usually had some smooth stones in there, some little smooth stones. Now, what might those stones be for? The sling, the very next time, that's right, to shoot with a sling. It's an interesting fact that shepherds were really good with their slings. Of course, our, immediately our minds go to the story of David and Goliath, don't we? You know, David was a shepherd boy, young teenage shepherd boy, but was so good with that sling, he felled the giant Goliath, uh, the tall Philistine but interestingly, the sling was actually a weapon of not only uh, defense, but also offense. It, it played both roles. One of the ways that they, one of the things that it's, we see that the shepherd using it, not only as defense to, to, you know, to hit or to defend against a wolf or something like that, but offensively, if a sheep wandered away, the first thing is, he couldn't just always run after it. His first response might be to take his sling out, take a stone, and he could fling that stone at the sheep and land it just in front of where that sheep was going that would stop it in its tracks and cause it to turn around. That's how good a shot they were. Now, give you a little scriptural backup to that. If you go back to the book of the Judges. And we won't go there this morning. But you could read this sometime on your own. If you go back to the book of the Judges, chapter 19 and 20, you're going to hear a story. You're going to read a story that's, frankly, it's a horrifying story. Okay, it's a horrifying story of a Levite who had a concubine, which was perfectly legal in those days. Concubine was a woman other than his wife. And the, the wife, the concubine, left him. It says that she was unfaithful to him in whatever ways we're not quite sure, but that she went back to her father's home and this was, uh, the Levite went after her and that was an embarrassing to him as a man and he you know, he went back to her and, and it tells the story in chapter 19 how he stays with them and uh, the story, eventually I won't tell the whole story, when they make their way back he gets the concubine to come back with him a wife, she's coming back with him He's got a young uh, servant with him, the Levite does, and a donkey. And they're on their way back to where they live. He lived in the Judean hillside. And uh, when he's on his way back, he stops for the night for lodging in the town square. I forget which town it is. But, you know, he's sleeping on the streets there in the town. And an old man, an old shepherd man's coming in out of the hills. And 
and he offers him rest in his home. That was the hospitality. The Middle East was very, very uh, customary to not let a person just sleep in the streets, come into our home. And so he does. They go into the home, and then the story goes downhill from there. It says that some, some very sinful men of the town went out, and they, they knew that this couple was there, and it says that they actually beat on the door and called out for the, the owner of the house to send out that Levite. And they want, it tells right here in the scripture, it says they wanted to have sex with him. It's a horrible story. Something similar we might have heard in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know. And, and the owner of the house says, oh, no, don't do this detestable thing. No, no, no. Here's, here, here's my virgin daughter and here's his wife, his concubine. Take them. But don't do this detestable thing, which is a horrible story to us to think that they were willing to give up their wives and daughters. I mean, it's just, this whole story is horrible, I tell you. But it's there for a reason in Scripture because these are the kind of things that happened when sin reigns in our world as it did then. And this is even amongst the Israelites. These are Israelites doing this. So, long story short, they abuse the woman all night long. He, the man comes home. I mean, the man wakes up in the morning. She's on the doorstep dead. He puts her on his donkey, goes back home. And then this Levite, it says, cut her body up into 12 pieces. And he sent one piece to every one of the tribes. Made sure it got to every one of the tribes. It's sick, I tell you. I know it's sick. Why did he do that? We don't know. It doesn't tell us why. We can only surmise that he was trying to send some type of message. Um, I mean, it's clearly horrible. Clearly he wasn't uh, the holy man that we would think he would be. But uh, the response, the point of the story is chapter 20. The response is that the people in Israel are outraged that an Israelite would do such a thing. And so they raise an army to come after them. They're going to go to the town. I think the town was Gibeah where this man was, and they go out, well, that's in the tribe of Benjamin, and so the tribe of Benjamin is, is uh, they, they know their own brothers, the Israelites, the other 11 tribes are coming after them. And so it talks about the number of people they raised, and Gibeon, the, I mean, not Gibeonites, but the Benjamites, the children of Benjamin, of whom this Levite was a tribe, he uh, lived among them. He, the Benjamin, it says the number of swordsmen that they gathered in the number of what? And then it says there were 700 who were so skilled with the sling that they could, uh, I can't remember exactly how it says, but they were so skilled with the sling that they could fling and never miss. They're shepherds. They're shepherds. Shepherds were skilled with slings. They didn't miss. So, you don't want to go read that horrible story, you don't have to. But the point I wanted to make from that is that the shepherd, even when needed to, could be on offense or defense and had a very important skill. Now, so that's the purpose of the sling. The staff, what is a staff? You may know what the staff is. Is that the walking stick? You would think. I, you know, there was a time when I thought it was too without a little more careful study. It's not. We tend to call them that. We think, oh, this, you know. You know, in, in the 23rd Psalm, what does it say about staffs? Thy rod, that's right, Mark. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort us. How many of you ever thought that was all one thing? He was just using two names for it. Thy rod and thy staff. It's actually two different things. What'd you say, Jackie? I was saying, like, it would be to help Correct. It is a short club is what it is. It's a short club that he could wear tucked in his belt and usually had some nails at the end of it. I mean, it was for defense. It was, an, it was a tool. Of, it, was a, it was a weapon, if you will. Okay, that's the, that's the staff. The rod. What's the rod? That's right. The one, that's the shepherd's crook. You know what I mean? The one that has the... Uh, has the, the, like that, okay, with the crook in it. They call it a crook, a shepherd's crook, a crook in it, you know, a crook turning the end. Today, it's symbolized by bishops. Okay, bishops in the church, churches that have bishops, their bishops always carry, in a, in a processional or in a church service or whatever, the, the bishop always carries. It looks like a shepherd's hook. It is. That's it. And they called it a rod. Is that you put it in your plant garden? Yeah, 
Yeah, you could put it in your plant garden. Yeah, that's right. Hang something right off here. This is the rod, okay? The staff was a club for defense. What was this used for? What was the rod used for? Yeah, you could literally, now this could be the walking stick, of course. But it also, with that crook, could, you know, wrap it around a, a sheep's neck and kind of pull it back, keep it in line, whatever he needed to do. Um, of course, in the funny days of vaudeville, the guy off stage always had one, right? And he would pull the actor off stage if they weren't doing what they needed to do. <laughs> that was kind of a thing in theater. If you ever studied theater, they talked about that. Um, but I thought it's interesting in the psalm, in the 23rd Psalm, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The rod, you know, we, I grew up here and, you know, uh, the rod as something that was, you know, you're going to get a spanking with or whatever, you know, don't, what's, so what was the old saying? I think it's scripture, it's scriptural, I can't tell you what verse it is. You spare the rod, spoil the child, but I think that's scriptural, I don't know, somebody looked that up on me. Well, if it's scriptural, somebody look it up, and I'm not going to tell you it's scriptural, and I, I can't remember the reference of it if it is. You know, there are several things people say, oh, that's in the Bible, when it's not. So I don't want to say it is unless it is. But it means, that, like, discipline for yeah, it means discipline. If you spare the rod, meaning you don't use it um, for discipline, then you're spoiling, you're actually spoiling the child. It's, it's used by people that want to say, well, you know, some discipline's important, you know. The scripture does teach us that God disciplines his but I children. Don't think you have to literally use a rod. No, no, no. I'm not saying that. No. <laughs> Although my grandmother did. Uh, you know, did uh, you uh, a spoon? <laughs> no, no, I didn't get a wooden spoon. Usually, but they didn't call it a rod, they called it a switch. Go get a switch, you know. Go outside and cut a switch. It was a branch off of a tree, is what it was, which is what the rods made out of a, you know, long stick, piece of wood, in other words. The idea was that it was Therefore, uh, in that scripture, that, that thought, spare the rod, spoil the child, for discipline. Discipline, of course, in love. God loves those. It says in scripture, you know, that he disciplines those he loves. And I think that's true. The point of the story is that if you really love your child, whatever your form of discipline, I'm not here to tell you what your form of discipline should be. I'm just saying that if you never discipline anyone or a child, they're going to become a spoiled mess. Rotten. Absolutely. It's true of all of us. It's true of every human being. We all need discipline. And that's why discipline, we speak of spiritual disciplines. Disciplines are meant for good, not for bad. In our culture, the connotation may be a negative word, but it's really meant for good. Prayer, fasting, study of scripture, what we're doing today, this is a discipline. You guys are willing to get up and come to a Thursday morning study, and you've, got, you've built a discipline of Opening your Bibles and studying. So discipline's a good thing. So the stat, the rod, in other words, is the shepherd's crook uh, that, is, that is used in a very positive way uh, as a caring, but also it could be construed as, as discipline in a way. So we, we've got a kind of a well-rounded picture here of the life of a Judean shepherd. A very tough life, a very dangerous life, a very self-sacrificing life. And into this, Jesus, in this parable of the great shepherd, begins to talk about, in these first six voices, this role of the shepherd. And he says specifically, he starts with a couple of images here that we want to talk about. I have written on here the door and the gatekeeper, and then let's also write down uh, the sheep fold. It's another thing that, that uh, Jesus mentions in this passage. Uh, and we want to get some of these straight in our mind. So Jesus says that whoever, remember he starts with that truly, truly. What does that mean? I'm talking to my people. He's, it, means, it means some of your Bibles might say amen, amen. Barely, barely. Or verily, verily. It means this is truth. Listen up. This is extremely important. What I'm saying, of course everything Jesus said is important. But he, you can just see him making emphatic. You need to know this. That anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man's a thief and a robber. So, what's the sheepfold? Okay, let's think of what the sheepfold is. When we speak about sheeps, we usually hear two words. I'll write them both down here. We hear the word fold, and we hear the word flock. Flock. 
Is there a difference between a fold and a flock? Or are they just describing the same thing? What do you think? It's an enclosure. Is the fold the area that they're in? There is a difference between these two. Okay? The fold, in this case, he's calling it a sheepfold, okay? Could have it, it could be it's it's to it it's to image for us the entire area where they come in for safety. Might be a pen built with stones, but then again it might not be a pen because they didn't have any stones to build a pen. But he's going to use these terms, we're going to learn these terms carefully as we study this chapter. There is a difference between the fold and the flock. This becomes really important when we start thinking about how scripture has been interpreted through the ages and what is the church. Okay, Now the flock, there are many flocks. Okay, Shepherd may be working with one flock over on this hillside one day and his father may pull him and send his brother out there and you go work with this flock over here tomorrow. See, they may have more than one flock, and there are indeed flocks everywhere. So you can see there's a little bit of a, a, a difference here between the two. Fold generally implies, in the imagery of Scripture, the universality of God's people. Okay, The fold is the universality of God's people, and the flock is the individuality of God's people. Let's just use denominations, for instance. We have different denominations within Christian faith. So we might say within the fold of Christianity, there are many flocks. Does that make sense? But we're all one fold. Okay. And what, what he's saying here is that he's going to go on to say, basically, that there is, if you don't enter the sheepfold by the door, anyone who tries to get in any other way is a robber and a thief. So let's think, what's the door that Jesus is? This is Jesus talking about. He says, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. This is beautiful imagery, but what does it mean? He's the door, Jesus is the door. Is he? He is. But what's going to confuse us is that, because in verse 7 he's going to tell you, look at verse 7, we're, we're going to We'll probably won't have time to study it until next week, but let's, let's look at verse 7 while we're here. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. So you're right there, Debbie. Jesus said, I'm the door. But is there another door too? Was Jesus used this word twice in different ways? Let's go back to verse 1. He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Jesus is the shepherd of the sheep. Okay? And now he's talking about entering a door. So there must be another door that's, that's not Jesus. Jesus is now, in verse, in verse uh, 2, he's literally saying that the, the shepherd enters, the true shepherd, the shepherd of the sheep, enters by the door. What is the door? What's another door? What's another thing that that door might symbolize here in John's mind as he wrote this? Mine says gate. Two. You could use gate or door either way. Yeah, meaning there's only one opening. Meaning there's only one opening. Okay, because he's also going to talk about the gatekeeper in just a minute. So what I want you, we're so in tune to thinking of Jesus as the, sh the, the, the door. Because, you know, he, he is. It says in verse 7 he's the door. But also in verse 1 and 2, it says that the shepherd, who is Jesus, enters a door. What is that door? And that's the door everyone must come through. If they're going to be a shepherd, if they're going to be... Now, we have many shepherds. We have one true great shepherd, as it says in the book of Hebrews. But there are many shepherds. Let's talk about that for just a minute. While we're trying to think of what this symbol of the door is. The word shepherd comes from the Latin word pastor. Pastor. If, it, if we were talking about a shepherd in Latin, it would be pastor. Why am I called a pastor? Because it is my calling and my ordination and my job to shepherd human sheep. Okay, to care for them. Okay, it's a, it's a designation. So there are many shepherds. Jesus may be saying something to us about the fact that there are many, 
as John says later in his first epistle, there are many antichrists. There are many who will try and claim to be your shepherd. There are many who will be claimed to be the good shepherd. But know that there's really only one. And all who are to be a shepherd must enter through the door. What's the door? What is the what is the doorway that protects that is only through what's that? Could be, could be, could be, but uh, here's what here's where I'm trying to lead you. No, I know it's it's difficult. What I'm I'm trying to widen your thought process here. I believe what John is saying here, what Jesus he's saying, Jesus is saying here, is that Jesus is pointing us to Scripture as the other door. Because what is the word that John gives to Jesus? Like this would be the door. Yeah. All. Yeah. What? Even though they didn't have it all put together, they had the Old Testament. One day we would have it all. But what is the word that John gave to Jesus when he said, "In the beginning was the the Word, and the Word was God." Okay. We are sometimes trained to think, "Oh, this is the Word of God." And I said, "No. Remember, when you hear in the New Testament, always when you see that word Word, always think of Jesus." Well, here I believe he's using this imagery of a door as the word of God. Because the word of God, Jesus and the word cannot be separated. This is one of the things that, that ancient Eastern Christians, it was their nature to understand that the word of God, meaning the Holy Scriptures, okay, the Holy Scriptures of God were synonymous with God. They're not just human writings that humans wrote about God. Are God. They're holy. They reveal Him in a mystical way. This is truth. Okay? That is part of the imagery that I believe John is using here in Jesus, in Jesus' words to the people. So, not only is Jesus the doorway, there is also the doorway of Scripture. So, therefore, every shepherd who will ever come and claim to be a shepherd better measure up through Scripture. Okay, we have a test. We have a test. And that test is the truth of the word of God. In fact, in chapter 14, Jesus is going to say, I'm the truth. That's what he's saying every time he says, truly, truly, I'm the truth. So, if you'll have it, I believe Jesus is saying, but he who enters by the door of scripture is the shepherd of the sheep. Well, we know Jesus enters by that door of scripture because he perfectly fulfills scripture. So that's another proof of who he is. He is the perfect fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies, all that scripture ever said. So then it says in verse 3, to him, meaning to the one that opens, the one that actually enters through the door, to him the gatekeeper opens. So we have three things going here. We have a door, we have a gatekeeper, we have a, uh, a, uh, a shepherd, a Write that in here, but that's kind of a given. The shepherd, the door, and the gatekeeper. Mine says watchman. So read what yours says. Um, <clears throat> it says the watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Yes. The watchman is another word for shepherd. In other words, he's using that's a, that translation is just trying to give us another kind of a synonym for the shepherd. Um, verse 3, what does yours say? To him the gatekeeper? Yours doesn't say gatekeeper, does it? Verse 3. The watchman. Yours says the watchman in verse 3? Interesting. The watchman opens the gate. Okay, so the watchman there is the gatekeeper in yours, okay, not the shepherd. So in yours it's saying the watchman or the gate is equating to the gatekeeper. Does anybody else have watchman in theirs? How many of them say gatekeeper? Okay, so the same role, I wanted to be clear on that, that's the same role. The gate, but who's the gatekeeper? Who's the watchman? The shepherd. You said the shepherd. No, the shepherd's entering through that the the gatekeeper opens the door. The, watchman. the gatekeeper opens the, watchman the door. Jesus Christ. If the door now, this is this is tricky, but it's good once you get it. Okay, now think with me. The door, in this case, is the scripture. The true shepherd enters through the scripture because he is the truth of scripture. And somebody's opening the door 
of the scripture. God. The gate. God, or perhaps we could say God the Father, or maybe even better, the Holy Spirit. Because what is John going to say later in this book? I think in chapter 16, he's going to start talking about the Holy Spirit. He will be the one to guide you into all truth. He's the gatekeeper. The Holy Spirit is the gatekeeper of our faith. The Holy Spirit is the gatekeeper of the faith. Jesus Christ is the good, great shepherd. And all who will shepherd with him, let me use the phrase that's liturgically used in worship services, by him, with him, in him. In, in, in some of the liturgical services uh, of, of Christianity, especially in the elevation and the, uh, the uh, consecration of the Eucharist, the minister says, by him, with him, in him, or through him, with him, in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father. What are we saying? That shepherds, okay, I'm, I'm supposed to be a shepherd. That's my calling as a pastor. Shepherds, I'm not the shepherd, I'm a shepherd, but everything I do as a shepherd is to be through, with, and in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, the great shepherd. What's that? There's that threeness, yeah. So do you, do you see what, what John is opening for us in some of this imagery? There's, the big point of the chapter is, yeah, Jesus is the good shepherd, but there's so much in the details that we want to catch. There is only one way in, and that is through the truth of God's word, and that word is Jesus, and that word is the scripture. And the Holy Spirit is the gatekeeper. He is the one that discerns and helps us to discern and guide us into all truth. So, a lot in just three verses there, isn't there? So, what else does Jesus say here in verse 4 through 6? He starts talking about when he has brought out all of his own. So, clearly there is a group within this. Let's come back to these flocks and folds, okay? Clearly there's a group that's his own and there's a group that isn't. Because he's, he's delineating the difference. Jesus is saying, when the good shepherd has brought out his own, he goes before them, and they follow him. Okay? So Jesus goes before us in everything. Through, the, again, how does Jesus go before us today? He literally led those guys around the Judean hillside. I mean, he had 12 disciples, and they followed him everywhere. But how does he lead us today? Through the Spirit, that's right. Through the Holy Spirit, leads us in everything. And he goes before us. Now you can start to hear the Apostle Paul when he's writing to stay in step with the Spirit. You know, the Spirit goes before. Do not get ahead of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Sometimes I've gotten, I've gotten ahead of the Holy Spirit. And uh, that's when I didn't really pray about something and I didn't really discern what I should have done. And then I realized, I don't think I should have done that. Well, I was getting ahead of the Spirit. So you did it your way... Yeah. Yeah. And how many times do we do that in life? A lot. A lot. Okay. So, he says they know his voice. Why do the sheep follow him? Because they know his voice. What is the voice of Jesus Christ? How can, how can we know? We, we need to spend a little time on this. Because there have been false shepherds, false prophets, false Christs all through. There had already been some in Jesus' day and there's been so many ever since. And there are still false shepherds today claiming to be the truth but leading people astray. How do we know? I mean, when you, if you're born into this world, you're, you're born into a culture, into, everyone's born into a culture, into a family, uh, and that family's in a culture, and, and there is within that family and that culture some norm of understanding and belief about life. It might be church, it might not be church, okay? But ultimately, they've got some norm of understanding. This is the way we do life. And they try and pass that understanding on to the next generation whether they believe they're doing it or not. We're always teaching. We're always passing on to the next generation whether we realize we're teaching or not. If we're not teaching them right, we're teaching them wrong, just by default. 
And so what we're dealing with here is, is, is this knowing the voice of Jesus Christ. How do we know his voice amongst so many voices? We have to test it against the word. And I think I'm going to give you four things we have to test it against. And I think this is the genius of why we are, well, I'm, I'm, I love the Wesleyan thought. Wesleyans who follow John Wesley, who followed Jesus, of course, we're not, you know, John Wesley's not our savior. Jesus is. But John Wesley had some very important things to say in the life of the church. And what was it that John Wesley said that was so formative to helping the people of his time figure out the truth and who to follow? Because they had the state church. They had the Church of England. And the Church of England had thought of itself as part of the one true church. It was kind of an arm that had reformed itself of the true Catholic church, if you will, from the Western world. You can kind of forget about the Eastern churches because they were off behind the Muslim curtain and nobody really knew who they were. But in the, in the Christian West, it was the Roman church, and then, of course, it was reformed into all these different Protestant churches. But England was out there and thought of themselves as still the real Catholic church that had reformed from Rome in some important ways. And, and John Wesley was part of that. He was born into that culture. He was raised. His father was an English Anglican clergyman of the Church of England. And John Wesley and his brother were both clergymen of the Church of England. And he began to see the church was not measuring up. It was dead. The church was dead. In fact, there were all kinds. If you can go back, there's a really good book called The Anglican. I think it's called. Ah, no, I forgot the title. It might just be called The Anglican Reformation or something. That you can get your mind about. If you read that book, you really understand the world that John Wesley grew up in. And the Anglican church was just schizophrenic at the time. It just didn't know whether to follow Rome or whether to follow itself and what to do. And uh, it had doctrine on both sides of the fence. Some of its doctrine was Calvinistic. Some of it was not. It was just really messed up at the time. And John Wesley was trying to bring reform to the Church of England. And, of course, the... <laughs> The bishops didn't like John Wesley very well, and he preached about this idea of being, uh, having a pure heart and following the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And everywhere he preached, it drew thousands of people. Sheep were listening to a voice, and there were thousands of them. And sure, he could have been a false prophet, but how do we know he wasn't? How do we know Wesley wasn't a false prophet? Because what he taught measured up with scripture and ultimately it endured. Okay, we're still here today. And we're still proclaiming that message. And his message was not, it, it was that there was a quadrilateral. It's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. He said there's four things that we need to rest our discernment on. Does anybody know what they are? I'll write them on the board for us. What are those four things? It's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Quad meaning four. So if we, like this, what's the, what are they? Well, one we've talked about is scripture, okay? One is scripture. What? Prayer. No, prayer happens within it. It's kind of tough if you don't know what they are. One is tradition. Wesley said, yes, we need to understand tradition. Tradition's a part of our faith. And it does explain truth to us. How can we say that? The Apostle Paul says in the book of either 1st or 2nd Thessalonians, he says, pay attention to the traditions we taught you, whether by word or by mouth. I mean by word or by letter, sorry. So traditions are, are very important. And then he said there was also uh, reason. Is it reasonable? When we, when we consider the tradition of the church... When we consider it compared to Scripture, when we consider it consider it compared to, is it reasonable? And then finally, experience. Your experience in the Holy Spirit. Your experience through all. So this Wesleyan quadrilateral became a became a lens through which truth for Wesleyan Christians was to be determined. Um, and I think it's a very important thing that we learn. Because there are many evangelical Christians who say, um, well, we're Bible only. You know, you hear that. We're just a Bible only Christian. We're just a Bible only church. Well, that's fine. It sounds good. 
You know, there's nothing wrong with that. The Bible's the holy word of God. Nothing wrong with that. But the fact is, what they're calling the Bible didn't exist until the 4th century. There's 300 years of Christianity. It was solidly entrenched in the world through tradition and experience and reason without all that Bible. It was the work of all those early church fathers and and the people that took over from the, the apostles as they died out and the things that they taught that helped build the foundation of the church. Paul talks about that in the book of Ephesians, that we're built on a foundation that is laid. Yes, Jesus Christ is that cornerstone. There's a whole lot of other building blocks in there that are the apostles and the traditions, and we're all being built up into this building. So I throw that in to say, when we think about following Jesus, how do we hear his voice? It's good to think, Scripture, is it true in Scripture? And some people will argue over what's true in Scripture, won't they? That's the truth. We see that every day. People argue, denominations argue about what's true. So then maybe we step over to tradition. Well, does tradition help us understand whether that's true or not? Is it reasonable? Does that help us understand if it's true or not? And has it been the experience of not only us, but those who come before us? So there's a lot to learn there about how do we follow the voice of Jesus. I personally believe that God is active and calling everyone in the world. But we won't naturally know his voice unless we yield the stubbornness of our heart to want to hear his voice. I truly believe that if you're willing, I mean, many people have sat down and read the Bible willingly, and they have read it wrongly. Okay? And they have started off on a tangent. We've talked about them. The church through the years has really called them heretics usually. And they've just started down on a, on a wrong path of teaching by reading the same scriptures. So we must read it yielding our heart, yielding our mind to not only our own feelings, okay, but the well-rounded teachings of the history of the church and scripture and every reason and everything. That's where, because if we're not going to do that, if we're just going to read the Bible and say, oh, all we need is what it says right here. Well, how do we know we understand what it says right here? If we don't even know our history, if we don't even know the history of the early church, if we don't know the history of the Old Testament people. Um, and so it's very easy to read the Bible and just read it wrongly. So we, need, we must be careful. I do believe I firmly believe that the Holy Spirit is calling, though. And I believe that the heart that is sincere can find what's necessary for salvation by reading the Scripture. I believe you can sit down and read the Gospels, and you can see that Jesus Christ is God. And then you can see that He's the Savior of humanity. And you can see that you can trust in Him. Now, whether that means you're supposed to be a Catholic or a Protestant, that's going to take a lot of debate. (laughs) That's going to take a lot of study and a lot of debate. But you can know that he is God and that he is our Savior. So this idea of Wesleyan experience becomes really important. So this figure Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. They didn't understand all that he was saying. Probably this group of them weren't necessarily shepherds. But he's going to expand it. So next week we will get into verse 7 and beyond. And we'll listen as Jesus takes, he continues to take this beautiful metaphor of the shepherd and the sheep, deeper and deeper. And he begins to talk about all of our lives and how we actually live our lives. But for this morning, let's just close with this thought. There is a door. It is Jesus. It is his word. There is a gatekeeper. It is the Holy Spirit. And he guides us, if we'll let him. And there is a fold. And there are many flocks. And that is supremely important to our understanding and our identity as Christians alongside other Christians. You know, Baptists and Nazarenes, Methodists and Presbyterians, Catholics and Orthodox, we're all part of the fold, I believe, when we put our saving faith in Jesus Christ and we live according to the faith once and for all delivered. Remember the Nicene Creed I gave you several weeks ago? 
We all say amen to that. That's the creed. That's the tradition. Okay, when we can say amen to the tradition of the church, we know we are truly within the fold. Any thoughts, closing thoughts? Uh, we're up to the top of the hour. No, this is kind of deep stuff to just go through a few verses, but it's going to be really good when you see the fullness of the chapter. Any other, any other closing thoughts or questions? Comments? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so in awe of the beauty of your word to us through scripture. This beautiful imagery of the Good Shepherd. What an incredible what an incredible image for us to see our Savior as one who lays down his life for his sheep. And I pray that you would speak to us as we study this chapter and help our minds and our hearts to be shaped and, and, and guided to hear the voice of our shepherd, Jesus Christ. We ask this through the strong name of our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever and to the ages of ages. Amen. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.